Hi everyone, Neil here. This next episode ended up being so long, we have split it into two parts. There's lots of waffling, I go full Grandpa Simpson with my tangents, but I've decided to leave it fairly unedited, just so you can enjoy a conversation between three naturalists driven slightly mad by the lockdown. Enjoy! Hello, I'm Nick Baker and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast. Hello and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Victoria Hillman. And we have a very special oh that was a good start, wasn't it? We have a very special guest today, Nick Baker. Hello. Hello, Nick. Hello. Hi Nick. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Let's try that again. Hello. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're not professional broadcasters, Nick. I'm going to leave that in because that's brilliant. When you do that, I don't know who you're saying hello to. That's a problem with freeway, isn't it? We'll start off very quickly with some podcast news. Downloads are still going up. We're at 7,800 and something. So thanks everyone for listening and downloading. Twitter's up to 258 and Facebook's up to 378. So thank you very much to everyone that has popped over and given us a like or a follow. And also to everyone that's interacted over this last week or so, because we've had a lot more interactions, a lot of feedback, which has been fantastic. So thank you, everyone. Do we start with the guest, shall we, first? It's only polite, yeah, isn't it? So Nick, it is. what have you been seeing in your garden recently? Oh, I've seen loads of stuff. It's been quite nice, really, because um, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm pretty much, uh, uh, well, stuck at home like a lot of people right at this time, uh, period of time. And um, yeah, I've just been enjoying watching the seasons go by, really. And we're getting, um, you know, the migrant birds are coming through. I've been trying to find the black cat nest in the hedge. He's been leading me a merry dance because, of course, he's he's I saw him building a nest. I couldn't quite find the nest. But, of course, that I've just learned that black caps actually make what you call a cock nest. So um, they can have up to five or six of these things, which they then take the, the, the female. If you manage to attract them, takes the female around and shows him the nest. And if she likes one of them, then they'll do a proper job on it. So I've got no ideas where I saw him carrying those uh, grass stems, whether he was actually building a, the real nest or whether that was just his it's one of his fake ones. So I don't really know. So, um, uh, but loads of insects. I mean, it's that time of year. I mean, lockdown coincided with, you know, like an early summer, really. And of course, it just sped everything up. I've been running a moth trap in the garden. I've been watching the uh, the pond skaters and the water crickets coming out onto the surface of the pond. I've got the jumping spiders on the walls. I've got jumping spiders in the house at the moment as well. Um <laughs> Lots and lots of really good stuff, um, and of course it's the it's the early pollinators. It's watching the um, the first of those winged lovelies, um, you know, the bees, the early spring bees, um, and of course the first generation of workers. Now we've seen the big bumblebees of spring, of very early spring, and now we've got the very first of the the tiny little, the tiddly little uh, first generation of workers. We've got wasps nesting in the shed. So I'm just I'm just really enjoying um, sucking up the details of these little lives that we all so often take for granted. Yeah, definitely true. Definitely you had, true. You had much about Vic? Lots of sparrows and starlings. We've been playing guess how many birds we can fit in the bird bath in any one go um, <laughs> this week. So far, we've had four starlings and two sparrows at any one time. How they all quite fit in there, I don't know. Uh, quite a few goldfinches around at the moment, um, which is quite nice to see. Uh Bees have been a bit 
kind of hit and miss this week but we've had quite we've had a few days where it's been really wet and quite cold and and miserable so not seen quite as many this week as we did the week before um but i think probably sighting of the week for me was uh, we were just kind of looking out the window as you do at the moment and we just basically saw a fox trot up the road oh. up the driveway like it owned the place no, you know no no care for anything else just straight up the driveway up and then up onto the the bank and then through the hedge really good condition looking lovely um so yeah that, that was absolutely fantastic actually and you'll be pleased to know neil that my buzzard imitating starling is still hanging around oh, and calling yeah. every day in the hedge yeah my uh my herring gold stroke green whippecker imitating starling. I haven't heard him recently. I've, I've seen a couple of starlings come in and out. Um, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with my garden birds. I've spent well, I spent three hours in the hide last week and not a single one posed for me. And yet every time I go to wash tank up at the sink or get a drink or whatever, there's two goldfinches sitting at my feeders. So uh, <laughs> they're not in my good books. But the some birds that are in my good books, literally about an hour before I recorded this, uh, I was out of my shed. I was sitting there and I thought, what's that noise? That sounds... <gasps> and ran out, scared the life out of my daughter was outside because she thought I was, you know, upset because I was screaming in excitement because three Swiss were flying over the house. So that was quite nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and she she even got to... They went past. She's like, where? 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 So, and luckily they looped around again and she got to see them. And I said, they've come all the way from Africa. And she looked quite impressed. So, uh, yeah, my daughter's had her first Swifts knowing that she probably saw them last year, but didn't really twig what things are but then for uh turned four last week so two weeks ago i've lost track of time <laughs> i think um, we all have <laughs> yeah that's yeah. that's actually the one thing that i've not seen yet i've not seen any swifts at all and we normally have some that we do see around here but i haven't seen any or heard any actually this year you, so. you, you've had a few fly around haven't you nick i have yeah i've been doing these little instagram live things in uh, most days and um, i had my first swift uh, sort of dive bombed me in the garden on uh, at the weekend. So yeah, I've uh, um, and swifts are really special birds for me. I've got a, I've got a nest box project at my local church, and to me that is the beginning of summer. But what was weird for me, they they you know I saw them only a a week or so um, later than my first swallow. So the, it's like the swallows were pretty late this year, or seemed to be, and the swifts have been a bit early. So uh, yeah, they came quite close. But yeah, it's for me, it's the proper you know it's the it's it's summer they're here for so short a period you know just a yeah. couple of months they they come in bish bash bosh get the babies done out out of the nest um and that's it they're gone again and of course they you know that, as as aeronauts you know for a speed freak aeronauts anyway they're not so many but they're so fast and they're just brilliant i just love them psychopathic screaming in and out the chimney stops and the satellite dishes i love them i always ask this i remember in the road I grew up in, in Romford, there was one house down the street had them nesting. And they used to, walking home from school, they used to shoot out from underneath the eaves and back again. Just, and just here, I don't really, I, I have found I've got swallows just down the road now, but we don't tend to get swallows and house martins, but we do get Swiss flying around. And like I said, when is it? It's July, isn't it? They head back. Just when you get the huge family groups making a racket just before the sun goes down, it's lovely. Definitely, yeah. definitely, definitely the sound of summer. They may be oh, a bird, but I think they're worthy of a podcast at some point. They are. They are. Yeah. I think so. Well, may, maybe I'll get to see them this week. The weather's supposed to be improving this week, so maybe I'll get yeah. to see them they're this still week. Trickling in. We've had some nice feedback. June Bagnall has said, Hi, I just want to say how much I've enjoyed the podcast. It's kept me sane while in lockdown here in Republic of Ireland. 
Hello, June. We say a big thanks to David Feller and David Fielding. That's David R. Feller and Urban Ponds 101, who's chat with all the cool pond videos, who are always retweeting and posting about our podcast. Thanks very much, guys. And, you know, we've got another celebrity follower, listener now, um, Victoria. Uh, we've got Dara McNulty, who some of you may know. He's been on Springwatch and everything a few times. And the young lad from Northern Ireland, he needed an ID on some Anthony's Gardens. And I uh, directed him towards our podcast and he's now following. So hello, oh, Dara. perfect. Hello. Yeah. Welcome. It's been great to see that there's been a lot of love for the for my posts on the plants growing in walls. That I mean, and this was one of our little ideas that you could do on your daily exercise when you're out and about and just try and photograph you know the different plants that you see growing in the walls because I have to admit until recently I hadn't taken that much notice of them but I see probably at least one or two new ones every week when I go out now and there's certainly more coming through and there's been some really lovely kind of feedback and people getting involved as well so you know big thank you to everyone for that and you know hello to Stephanie Foggy Knitter um, who's been kind of joining in in with that so yeah thank one you of my favorite people. flowers and aquilegia i like those I mean, they are really great. pretty you're not short of wall growing plants i remember down in the southwest there you two are you because i remember my uh, granddad he had a house well, nana and granddad uh, just the other side of dartmoor to you nick um, yeah. and i i was quite amused when i was a bit older because his he had a classic sort of cornish hedge border to his garden nice big garden and it's covered in heart's tongue fern well in essex it's a county red daedalus species because it's so rare (laughs) wow that's amazing i remember it was a notable plant on the list so i started working what tire country park and it's like what because it grows on a couple of the pillboxes i was like huh we get it in the streams and stuff in my new job and it's just it just cracks me up that it's so dry this side you don't ferns apart from bracken and stuff aren't that common but well there's got to be an advantage of being soaked continuously yeah. by uh, those westerlies so um so if that's if that's it then i'm gonna have to cling to that but uh, yeah. yeah well we got lots of good stuff there i mean our walls here on dartmoor are famous for for being craggy and beautiful and um we've got uh, naval works one of my favorites oh yes because these beautiful sort of round disc-like leaves with this little like little belly button right in the middle. It's a beautifully named plant. It's actually nice and edible. You can actually eat the leaves as well. It's quite tasty. And then you've often got things like, we've got all the introduced valerians and stuff, which are always beautiful for the insects, nice for a hummingbird hawk moth in the summer. But then you've got the, the ivy leaf toad flax, which has got there as a plant with this amazing ability to, once it's flowered, the flowers point outwards, and once it's flowered, it turns around and then it becomes uh, negatively phototrophic. So it, it then grows away from the light into the dark. So it plants its own seed oh, heads wow. into the cracks and crevices. So that's pretty cool. And then we've got all the spleenworts, you know, they're these fantastic little hardy little ferns that that uh, they when it gets hot, not that it happens very often, but when it does get hot, they dry out and dehydrate and you think they're all died. And then the first rain, they just miraculously spring to life. They unfurl and go green again. Um, so, yeah, we've got lots. I mean, there's loads of good stuff. And uh, walls are brilliant, of course. Great habitat for solitary bees and, of course, various spiders and, and then the reptiles. You know, it's, it's a, a nice little place for lizards around here and slow worms as well. But, uh, but yeah, there's, uh, there are plants growing out of walls. I'm going to have to join in with that, you know. So I'm gonna, that's going to be my challenge. I want to photo, try and photograph some Ivy League toad flax because toad yeah. flax are just cracky little plants, aren't they? They, they are. I mean, we had, I think... A, saw the maidenhair spleenwort for the first time last week i think that's the first time i've seen it out this year and then got two different species of stone crop 
yesterday when I was out on my walk. And it's just, I mean, I'm, I'm just walking around with my phone as well. So I'm just using my phone and taking pictures of them as I go around. And it's just, Is that the rule? Is that the rules? You can only use a phone? Uh, no, it's just I'm only capable of using a phone right <laughs> now. I, just, I need to be clear of the rules before we get involved. Yeah. Please. So, uh, uh, no, I was, I, I'm basically just using my phone because I have no option. Um, I can't use my main camera right I'm, now. So I'm, I'm just using my phone. Now. I feel really bad. I'm, I'm flagellating myself right here. <laughs> <laughs> And also, yeah. I don't really, if I'm going on a 10K walk around town, I don't particularly just want to carry my camera with me. No, I get I get that. I, I'm with you. I feel your pain. So, uh, yeah. But no, you can use a proper camera. That's fine. It's no problem. Okay. Because I will definitely be redoing a lot of this next year when I can photograph them properly. So, yeah. <laughs> but interesting, interesting to see what else might come up, actually, in the next couple of weeks, especially after this next warm spell. Yeah. So where do, where do people, where are people sharing these, um, these stories, these images? Yeah, if you just tag us so at UK Wildlife Pod on Twitter, or you can use the tag UK Wildlife Podcast, we've been saying. But uh, yeah, just uh, or, or just um, reply to Vic's post on our. Yeah, I, I'm, well. I'm just yeah. posting them straight onto Twitter, onto our yeah. Twitter account. Yeah. Okay. Popping them on you. there. I'll find yeah. you. I'll join in. Yeah, yeah do. Brilliant. It'd be great. Great to see what you've got done there. I haven't actually been out of the house to do it yet. No, oh, I'm going to take some effort. I mean, it's an old fort that's probably within within the rules to walk to for me. So I'm not going to have a look. And I know there's stuff going on that. There's also a pond there, and I'm <laughs> I'm getting a bit itchy feet with like a pond. If you know that. Do it, do I it. Know. Yeah, I am jealous of you guys for that stuff. I do love stuff growing in walls. There's something brilliant about it. It's sort of a but there's a a nice seat. Whatever it's a seawall, it's a cliff wall in, in Lou. Do you ever go down to Lou, Nick? It's a bit far away for you, isn't it? But... Regularly, at least twice a day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I walked in on that one, didn't I? Yes, um, yes, I do occasionally, although I've not been for quite some time for obvious reasons. But yeah, we, you know, Cornwall's just down the road, so um, we head, we head on down that way when we can. But uh, but yeah, some nice. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're very lucky, really, down here. We've got lots. Of, I mean, it's why I end up moving down to this part of the world. Is like I've got two two national parks on my doorstep and this wonderful convoluted coastline and lots of you know lots of. That's good stuff in really short distances from anywhere. But yeah, so I can only dream at the moment of getting out of um, out of my out of my locality, <laughs> like everyone else, I guess. Yes, well, my, I mean, mine are pretty much everything I'm doing is is done walking. So a lot of it's actually on the walls around town as well. So I'm not going that far. Yeah. Um, I'm not braving the woodlands because it's just way too busy down there right now. So a lot of the stuff that I'm doing is just walking around the streets and just seeing what I can find. I've mentioned Lou because I remember going down there and, and lots of the walls covering all sorts of, like, as you get closer down to the wall toys, there's more marine salt-tolerant plants. And I remember, even as a kid, sort of not really, not really interested in botany as a child, to be quite honest. But even then, I remember noticing all these things. And of course, I, I got distracted when I got down to the uh, seawall level because there's all the, uh, what are they called? Marine, no what are they called uh, the silverfish relatives i can't uh, names gone from my head oh the bristle uh, towers it's bristle towers isn't it marine bristle yeah. towers isn't it the one mm. that you get on there loads of them down. there's a, there's a patch as you walk down there it's covered in hundreds of them pain in a what to photograph i, I have to uh, tell you about this uh neil because obviously you're into the microcosm and the little details of life but uh i love their eyes oh yeah they're so bristle weird they've got the weirdest eyes they're big and bulbous and just googly they're just they're such good little macro uh, subjects if you can get them to stay still for long enough. But uh, yeah, they're crackers. I'd like to do a, I'd like to do a multi-image stack on one of those. Yeah, oh, yeah. If you get them to stay still. 
<laughs> little what's it? Yeah, Mayfly Nymphires. But uh, we're going off topic too far. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, intending to far too much. Is. I don't know what the topic is. <laughs> the topic is you today, but uh, well, we were right. talking about wall-grown plants. I think. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I can't remember. I thought we were just um, chatting, you know. I don't. I don't mind. I, I talk. I'd rather talk about anything else, you know. But. Uh... Yeah. Uh, oh, we've got a couple more bits of feedback. Sarah Marshall got in touch, so she's going to try out some of the camera tips we gave in the last episode in her garden. And oh yes, oh, I mentioned Lydia has started the Lens from the Fens podcast. We mentioned she started a podcast. She's a podcast on the Fens of sort of Cambridgeshire, Suffolk, that sort of area. That should be good. Uh, Norfolk, obviously. <laughs> but I have to mention uh, something on social media. Will have seen I posted. A picture showing me and Nick uh, from, shall we say, a few years ago. Which I think it's the first time I met you, Nick. Last, uh, spring, last spring, from the judging by the. Uh, oh that. yeah, yeah, yeah. We look exactly like that now. <laughs> yeah. We're going to get called out tomorrow when we go Scam Life. I've got a lot more hair now because I haven't cut it since the lockdown. But my friend Daniel Bridge has, who is a good friend, he's known to be. I'm going to say cheeky <laughs> would be the polite way of putting it. Unkind um, might be another word. Yes. He said, um, one of these people has aged well. Well, being that he's always mean to me, it's probably a compliment for you, Nick. So. Well, who knows, eh? Who knows? I know I'm I saying have nothing. Two. I'm a lot more silver now than I was in, those, in that particular photograph. And look, and I see it now. I, I, I sort of recognise the man there, but but he looks like well, he looks like a boy, but also looks like he's been dyeing his hair, which he hasn't. It's just I'm so used to looking at my... My grizzled um, <laughs> silver shot uh, bouffon now that I don't recognise that bloke's hairstyle at all. It's weird. Oh, my wife was finding silver hairs. She reckons I, I insist they're just very pale blonde. When I got dark brown hair, I think I got my Neil, beard. Neil, they're called hairs bracelets. of wisdom. Yeah. Oh. I, I want the. Um, do you know Fantastic Four, Mr. Uh, Mr. Fantastic, as those sort of grey streaks that go over his ears make you look rather wise, but still quite young. That's what I'm going for. So. Uh, Crossing my fingers, I'll probably lose all my hair. But no, my luck. I was getting, you see, they happened when my daughter was born. And I first got those little silver bits, and I thought, ah, this is going well. And then, then it all just goes, Poof, and it's everywhere. So you, it starts off in the right place, and then you'd have no control, I'm afraid, unless you start dyeing it, and that's a dangerous and slippery slope. No, I'm, I'm not. I'd, well, I say that I might dye it blue, <laughs> something crazy. <laughs> but no, I'm not going down that. That sounds like I'm far too much hard work. <laughs> Go on, dye it blue. Could be fun. Yeah, um, you want it. I, I do now. <laughs> um, do it. Could be fun. Oh, if it goes grey and I don't have to bleach it first, I might do it. Yeah. How about this? How about dyeing it in the same colour patterning as the abdomen of a water cricket? It's right up your street. So you can theme it. Mm. Sort of red with nice little black, you know, black. They are pretty stunning things. Yeah. <laughs> and then maybe a few white splodges as well. I think you look great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now seriously considering it. This is terrible. And if, if people people know me, will be in shock because I've never even had my face painted in my life. I was always used to run away as a kid. Cause I was it's getting like better, it. better, Neil. I can see this face painting and a water cricket hairstyle. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all there. Yeah. And of course, you won't be saying no because you've got to go masses of your followers. All oh. insisting they're going to put some money into the pot for your favourite charity. Oh, good bit. It's just going to happen, you know that. I have to find someone. Pretty, I have to wait till after lockdown. Sure I need someone to die. <laughs> my wife's not going to listen to this, so she'll be fine, but I don't trust her to die in my hair. <laughs> she, she's desperately trying to. I'm so glad that you can't buy clippers for love nor money because I'll have a number one haircut right now. You've done it in my sleep and I'll just slip through it, knowing me. <laughs> well, there's the postal service. I've got some clippers. 
Oh, wait, wait. oh no, no. <laughs> You'll lose your status as my childhood hero if you do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh right so should we move on to the news swiftly before I get... <laughs> right a uh, couple bits of news oh this is one that i found out from you nick the reed bed up in scotland i don't know if you know any more about what's been said i've seen the pictures this is the errol reed beds up on tayside devastating news and one of my uh, friends who's a volunteer for the rspb up there and we've been i mean i, I actually popped in and saw the reed bed when i was up there um giving uh talks for the scottish geographical society end of last year and uh I popped in uh, the afternoon before my lecture at the at Stirling uh, University, and it's an amazing rebed. And I thought I must come back next year when things are good. And um, and there's not a lot of it left uh, now. It's uh, rather tragically the whole thing is. I mean, there are patches left, but the vast majority of it has been just raised to the ground. It's just it was a. I mean, have a little look online. The footage is mm. horrific, and uh, and of course it's bang slap in the middle of the. Uh, uh, the breeding season for all the reed bed birds, including marsh harriers and bearded tits, and it, it's it's pretty it's pretty sad. It's a really sad thing to see, and of course, you know it's a uh, it's such a rare habitat, and it's not really you know it's it's not once upon a time there would have been lots of buffer and lots of reed beds all over the place, so anything that was displaced could probably find somewhere else to to uh, go about business but but here it's a, a different story really so there's been a lot of displacement I don't know much more than that other than I don't know if there's been any advancement on the possible cause it does seem very unlikely that it was a natural fire whether it's a you know a cigarette butt or a uh or it's deliberate we don't know it's yeah but it's just a real it's a real shame to see it I mean it will bounce back I mean reed beds are incredibly robust and they will uh they will bounce back in in next night before the end of the year. You probably won't even notice that it's ever been burnt. But obviously, the birds won't have had a chance. They they wouldn't have been able to have bred this year. So so the biodiversity would take a bit of a hit, and it'd take a, uh, probably several years for it to even get close to recovering at that level. But um, but yeah, real real shocking stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw the uh, saw the footage of it and. Yeah, I don't think there is any more news about it yet. I did actually look the other day and I couldn't find anything else about it, whether it was, you know, how it was started or anything. But yeah, really, really devastating. Very special habitats, those reed beds. You want a bit more positive news? Someone posted some footage from Dorset of a pine martin, which is quite interesting. So after the footage of some in, was it Matt Rosevere? Uh, photographed a pine martin in the New Forest. We knew they were there. But no one had proved it, and he got a lovely picture of one. So they're endorsed it as well. So they're spreading. Whether it's uh, an unauthorised int- reintroduction, I don't know. But part of me doesn't really care. <laughs> it's a good thing to have. And that's quite good because they, I suppose you'd come across this, Nick. They selectively predate grey squirrels over red more, don't they? Which yeah, is. Uh, I, I, um, I, I, we, yeah, I've forgotten, the, I've forgotten the, the scientist's name now, but we did interview um, on Springwatch about this um, several years ago now. And when I said that about the predation, we went, oh, no, no, there's no, we haven't actually got much direct evidence of mm. an increase in predation. Mm. Um, so it's the pine martins aren't necessarily actively predating the, um, the grey squirrels. But then she mentions something called the ecology of fear. Which is yeah. a great phrase, and and um, what it seems to be is that squirrels and uh, red squirrels and pine martin effectively co-evolved. Okay, so mm. so they are naturally alert and aware of predators that come in the form of a pine martin, whereas grey squirrels don't have pine martins where they are naturally from in North America. So okay, they have things like beech martins and all the rest of it, but but that's a real rarity. So or fishes, I think they call them over there as well, don't they? Um, mm. So. Um, 
Yeah, and it, you know, skyscrapers are heavier. They're more vulnerable to this sort of stuff. Um, so it may, they just sort of, the, the idea is that they're distressed by the presence of pine martins. Mm. But it doesn't, I still don't quite understand. Maybe there is some predation there. I think there was, there's, there's been some more recent studies that have sort of suggested, because Ireland is the case study, isn't it, where the, yeah. the grey squirrels actually retreating now as the pine martins are spreading. Although a friend of mine in Ireland has told me, well, he's not actually in Ireland now, but he, he obviously is <laughs> from Ireland. He's telling me that as typical as any every other country, or certainly around <laughs> in Britain, it seems, and well, I should be careful saying Britain, shouldn't I be in Ireland, but British Isles, as soon as something becomes successful remotely, people want it cold and, in you know, it's doing a great job of saving their native fauna. And because Pine Martin's nesting roofs sometimes, people are trying to say, oh, we've got to get rid of them, they're a pest. And you're like, oh. What I'm hoping is if we get enough Pine Martins in the new forest and that sort of area, who knows? In the future, might reintroduce reds. I reckon in the lifetime of your, well, our lifetime, probably, yeah. but- uh, our kids' lifetimes, we are going to see Pine Martins back like otters are back. I'm oh, yes. pretty sure about it. I mean, there's nothing holding them back, really. They're very capable of dispersing, just like the polecats that bounce back. I, they're very, very capable of dispersing. And I, I agree. I think they're going to re-establish a bit of a balance. Now, whether it's enough of a balance to allow red squirrels to thrive yeah. on the mainland where, you know, where we've got proper grey, you know, the grey squirrels pretty much dominant. I don't know, but that we can live in hope. I think it's a really exciting. Yeah, yeah. So there's hope, isn't there? Because for years it was, oh, the reds persist in Scotland because it's coniferous forests and the greys haven't quite got a foothold. But when you start looking at where the pine martin distribution is and stuff like that, it it's you know you can't say hundred percent, but there's a yeah. bit of you know the correlations kind of there at least and yeah who knows who knows it's, it's just hope that they all get persecuted that's what i'm worried we've got, about <laughs> we've got them in devon as well now we've got them in north devon they've uh, they've yeah. found camera traps it's more way so they've, they've appeared on camera traps there now whether we've got a maverick pine martin releaser who's traveling around the countryside throwing pine martins out of his car window well uh, I won't. Men- I won't mention names, but well, I'm we- guessing you're thinking the same person I am. Possibly, possibly. Yeah. Uh, we're not. Go there. But uh, you know, I've got no real gripes with that, really. I mean, it's it, we've got to a point. We've modified this island and its ecology so much that putting something back like that, I just don't think there's a problem. I know it's a very controversial thing to say, but I think there's a lot of <laughs> hidden benefits that we've also forgotten about. The case point I always use is they release somewhere between 30 and 60 million non-native pheasants every year. Don't even get me going. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, all us reptile fans is just... <laughs> yeah. They might have wiped out my, my, uh, my little colony of lizards at work. Yeah. yeah. No one never talks about that. that, 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 that um, you know, these, they're, they're finally doing a study on it. Yeah, there's been a couple of papers published now, but the you know they are major predators of not only ground invertebrates, and I, I've got anecdotal evidence that the local or a local population of high ground fritillaries was driven to extinction right here, where in the valley I'm living in, and only a few years ago due to a one season's worth of overstocking a pheasant shoot releasing one pheasant on the pheasant shoots overstocking in my view but um yeah yeah but this was a ridiculous number i can't remember the number now because it's several years ago but but it's i don't think it's a coincidence that the high ground fertility you know one of our most threatened butterflies disappeared around about the same time but also yeah the fact that they hammer everything and surprisingly adders and grass snakes are really high up on that list so yeah and and so localized extinction of of these reptiles is also being driven by this uh, artificial 
it's, it's a sport ultimately it's not it's not really anything that's required we don't need to do it but uh, but yeah and i don't know it's slightly controversial because then you know there, there are arguments in certain parts of the uk where the cover for game birds is pretty much the only cover there is left in the landscape so you know there is a, there's another side to this it's not quite as black yeah. but it, I, I think the fact it's not controlled the fact it's illegal to let release any non-native species into the uk yeah, exactly. uh, should be universal, but there are some species that are they're okay or have, have slipped through that particular release because they've been released for so long they're considered naturalised, and that's where it all starts getting a bit grey and fluffy. And we are, I don't think we're necessarily strict enough for that. But uh, no, I think the, the other the other extraordinary thing, isn't it, is the law around them that they're livestock while they're in the cage, and the moment they're let out, they're not the responsibility of the person that let them out anymore which no. I think is yeah. extraordinary, really. But there we go. We can start about cats, but I'm going to stay that as well. God. <laughs> we we'll said we covered really cats in another episode. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do them all. Let's really get yeah. really controversial this episode. Well, yeah. I want to get controversial. How about North Yorkshire? This is in the news again for being the Bermuda Triangle of Birds of Prey where the satellite tagged birds of prey is a, a buzzard this time rather than a hen harrier. There's hardly any hen harriers left to shoot, I guess. In North Yorkshire, a buzzard was shot again and there was a red uh, not red grouse <laughs> a plate of red grouse, red grouse? Do you mean a, a red, red kite <laughs> vanished in derwent reservoir in an area of drizzling grouse moors oh there's a shocker and we could mention this every podcast and <laughs> there's a story like this every time but we don't every time because it just would just be so depressing yep grouse moors still deny it. it's just a few bad eggs they say and yet everyone seems to not have to put a bird of prey because of them bear in mind these are just the satellite tag ones we know go missing you wonder how many go missing in that Ah, that sort of areas it's just i have been up to north york moors quite a few times and it's kind of oh look lots of red grouse and more red grouse oh there's an odd lapwing and that's it there's not really much you know there's the odd small bird around loads of pipits but it's just a not quite a moonscape but it's just a heatherscape and not much it looks beautiful in august but wildlife wise you do wonder if it could be a bit better especially when you see in the little patches of woodland how much is there it's full of adders and orchids and all sorts but there we go that's my <laughs> my regular moan about grouse moors <laughs> but there we go and there's not i'm gonna actually put something a little bit more positive in there good come on after all that um <laughs> it's, it's not really a news story but i think it's something that there are kind of various news stories going around associated with it and this is no mo may which yeah. i'm all behind we moved into our house four years ago i have cut my front lawn about... Sorry, I laughed then to interrupt because I thought you said no moan, May, and I thought, oh, that's going to last me about two weeks. Yeah, no you know, moan, May. Oh, shut up now. <laughs> let you carry on. Um, so we moved into our house four years ago, and I can honestly say I have cut my front lawn about five times in four years. And the last time I cut it was, I think I did it just before winter last year, later than I was supposed to for various reasons. And I've decided that I'm not going to cut it at all this year. And so I can definitely get behind this. And I think the whole scheme is actually being run by plant life. And the idea is that you don't mow your lawn for the whole of May. Now, okay, I think, you know, we all understand that maybe not all of it, but leave part of it to go wild. Don't mow everything within an inch of its life. So you have a desolate, green, boring landscape. Yeah, and there, there's been a lot of people going on to their councils, trying to get hold of their councils, especially at this time where we're in we're in lockdown. So do you really need to mow all the verges and everything? Why can't you let them just flourish? Because they're so important for our invertebrates and our bees and our butterflies and you know, small mammals and everything else. So it's actually really positive to see so many people getting behind no mow may. 
And I can honestly say there are real benefits to doing doing it because I have wild bee orchids growing in my front lawn. Wow. That's that's cool. some oh god, I wish um, you that. Yeah. That's that is I mean, it is the first the first time they've appeared this year. We had uh, common spotted orchids. Unfortunately, my next door neighbour thought it was a great idea. Do you remember that massive heat wave we had two years ago? It was about mm. 30 degrees for about eight weeks. Well, it was here anyway. Um, and at the height of the heat wave, they cut the front grass. So it's already gone brown and died back anyway. Cut the grass. And I said to him, please don't. Can you just leave it until the orchids are finished flowering? So he cut it, but cut everything, leaving just the the flower stalk for the common spotted orchids, um, which exposed them and damaged a lot of the other, like their little mini mini ecosystem, which allows them to survive. And consequently, this year we have no common spotted orchids. But I was really quite surprised. I put a fence around our front lawn because we share it. So I've actually put a fence around ours now, so no one touches it. Mm. I'm that protective over it. And we have two bee orchid plants in there. You know, I live in Froome. I've got bee orchids growing on my front lawn, you know, and just because we haven't cut it, they're, they're quite happy there. And it's alive with life. I mean, you go out there and once everything does come into flower, it's going to look amazing. So, you know what, go for it. Why not? Let's all go for no mow may. I think it's a great idea. Means I'd have my lawn. It's great. Yeah. I, I have to mow a little bit of it because obviously I need somewhere for the kids to kick football around. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh yeah, my, my son, 18-month-old, is better kicking a football than me. Which that is doesn't surprise me, now. No. no. Uh, I, I loved football, but I was always rubbish at it. <laughs> yeah, I never, um, ever liked football. Yeah. Still I, don't I, like football. I I'm went not for a, a football person. No, then I discovered yeah, my photography. It's this uh, podcast, isn't it? You just said you don't like fo- I don't like football either, but, I mean, it's still... It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I like kicking a football around my mates, and I did follow football, and I still follow it as in what's happening. But if I put a game on, I last about 10 minutes and get bored now. It's, it's wrong shape ball. Wrong shape ball. Oh. <laughs> I don't mind a bit of rugby sometimes as well. I used to like watching Formula One. I don't even bother watching that anymore. But there we go. We're going off on tangent again. Yeah, my garden, I did a, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I did a, what is it, about a two metre quarter circle in the end of my garden. That makes sense. Uh, so it's like a nice curve shape. Mm. And I forgot to turn over part of it to get the, because I've got some annuals in there and some things. One year it just turned into a mass of oxide daisies, which I didn't mind because I love oxide daisies, favourite flower, along with wooden enemies. I seems like the basic white flower, <laughs> nice and simple, and quite often get crab spiders on them, so I'm good there. And then they spread across the lawn and into my beds, and I did have to pull a lot of them up because it was smothering everything else. But of course, they only flower for a few weeks, and you kind of want a constant supply of flowers. But I, I, it's basically plants go in the ground in my garden and they might get watered for the first few weeks or if it's really hot I might water them but they basically have to survive so ice plants do well in my garden and uh, stuff like that but <laughs> yeah put some napweed in honestly just go yeah. oh I've got some, like I've got some, some and... in the mix I put in there is a bit of napweed and it doesn't seem to grow yeah. very well my I think it's, cause it's clay so it doesn't seem to like it so much oh, okay. yeah I've got a, a couple of teasels in there always good value see I, got, I can't grow foxgloves cannot grow foxgloves in my garden if I plant them, all right, but they 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 seeded one year and don't come back. But I love yeah, foxgloves. Weird. Napweed gone nuts. Yeah, I've got Crazy. kids, so I avoid um, foxgloves with the old poison stuff. Although I don't think they're that dangerous, really. But there we go. Right. Okay. We, we've got we've got Nick Baker on the show. We've left him out the conversation for us. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's like sitting there just listening to the podcast, which is yeah. brilliant. Yeah. So I'm sitting there going, oh yeah, I'll just listen. I'm enjoying myself. Just listening. <laughs> 
So yeah, it's fab. <laughs> it's got quite a good spread here actually because we kind of got far east, um, far west, and okay, you're towards the west, Vic. But there's there's probably three different climates going on here as well. So uh, a little bit of well, yeah, contrast I, going on. I'm, I'm pretty much on the edge of the Mendips, so mm. we get a very different kind of climate really. You're um, almost the Midlands. <laughs> <laughs> don't you dare Neil. <laughs> otherwise the moment i can drive long distances i swear i am coming over there <laughs> well, do, we all probably think watford's in the north so you know <laughs> from our perspective <laughs> Bristol's middlesbrough that's, that's somewhere up near scotland right isn't it? actually that is near scotland that's bad choice birmingham i should have said shouldn't i never mind right so nick we actually have a load of questions and we're already 40 minutes in so <laughs> <laughs> wow okay yes if this was your live stream we'd be finishing right now wouldn't we? yeah good job we didn't do the other online talking thing that name i've forgotten that everyone's using because that ends at 40 minutes isn't it but it um yeah we'll just get going and it'll go boom yeah over. this might god if we could go we'll give you a double episode this at this rate i'll start with a question from a friend of mine and friend of the show graham wallace uh, i need to mention his youtube thing a bit later but we'll do it later he asked who or what inspired your interest in nature in the first place and then later to make a living. Oh, gosh. Well, it would have been. I mean, it's so difficult because, I mean, where do you start? I mean, obviously, when I was growing up in the 70s, I was very much aware of Bellamy. But David Bellamy was very much there. I just loved his sort of, I just loved his style or lack of style. I really like that. Attenborough, of course, is om- om- omnipresent all through our lives. I remember... One of the few programs I was allowed to stay up late to watch was natural history programs. Because, I mean, I've been obsessed with natural history since I could crawl. So uh, watching Life on Earth when it went out for the first time, I, I remember being allowed to stay up past my bedtime to watch that. So that was pretty cool. Uh, Gerald Durrell, though, was my hero. Gerald mm. Durrell was very much not so much yeah. the well, I love the books. I love the, you know, the story books that he wrote about his travels and adventures and his animal collecting. But it wasn't that that, that my. my my Bible was The Amateur Naturalist. That was the oh, book yeah. that, um, well, later on inspired me to write a newer version of it, um, an up-to-date version. But I absolutely loved that. That was my manual. That was the one voice telling me that everything I was doing wasn't quite as weird as my yeah. friends thought it was. You know, I had that permanently out of the library. I kept yeah. doing it constantly. <laughs> it's amazing. There's some pages in the back which show you how to skin a mouse, you know, and yeah. and things like that. <laughs> and and um, all this stuff, and I've you know I've still got that mouse, you know. It's um it does not pretty, yeah. but it's you know all this stuff was it, it's just what I loved, and it helped me explore the world around me. It just hit the spot, you know. But when it comes to my family, like my family didn't, like my family made the ultimate sacrifice. My mum and dad moved out of a little brand new estate house that they bought when we were born. It wasn't the countryside that my dad had dreamed of bringing up his kids in. So my mum and dad decided they were going to move to a house they couldn't really afford. So we moved to a little village in East Sussex. They overstretched for the mortgage, etc. And they just made it work. And they did it for us. So they moved us into the countryside proper. A massive sacrifice. But of course, that that was it. That was, I had badges at the end of the garden, you know badges every night we're surrounded by woods and fields and rivers and and yeah that was it I mean I grew up on the edge of the Ashdown forest so Winnie the Pooh land was where I <laughs> um so you know 500 acre wood was my uh, was where I first 
went birding. I used to ride my BMX through Rue Sandy Pit. The Ashdown Forest itself is where I went to uh, watch night jars and Dartford warblers and all that stuff. So, so a really, really special upbringing. So my mum and dad, I have to obviously thank massively for setting me on the right path. But then my grandfather, you know, he taught me how, you know, he took me down the rock pools. He'd show me the rock pools of, of um, just below the uh, Seven Sisters, Seven Sisters Country Park. We'd go catching winkles to eat for dinner. You know, we'd sit there and we'd, we'd have winkles and vinegar and have to sit there with a pin and pull out the opercular and all of it. And it was partly foraging. It was partly, it's boy's own adventure stuff, you know. I didn't re- I wasn't doing this deliberately because I thought I had a career out of it. It was just what I did. It's what I, f- I found fascinating. You know, to breed all these creatures. Yeah, so really that I mean that was kind of it. I my next door neighbour took me badger watching for the first time. So yeah, it's a it's a sort of a real mixture of oh yeah, I'm watching you know, my other nan lived in Croydon or Beddington and we uh uh, you know, that's where I got to know ponds because she had a lovely pond at the bottom of her garden and it's very well established. And of course, lots of newts and cool things in it, frogs and toads. And and then we had the River Wandle that ran through Beddington Park. And that's the first time I found I caught myself a male stick insect. Uh, stick with my stick insect. Yeah. Uh, back is what I was trying to say. Um, yeah. You know, insects and their fish muddle up. But my first ever sort of male stickleback in fine fettle i will never forget and that that's sort of how it started i had no idea it was going to be a career well i knew actually when everyone asked me what do you want to do when you grow up i'd say i want to work with animals and everyone would immediately go uh, or assume that would be a vet then and i very very uh, you know vehemently denied that particular avenue because it was like i didn't want to be a vet I wanted to work with wild animals and it didn't matter what that would be. And I was always fixed on that idea. But the actual career, none of it was deliberate. Everything was accidental. I left university. I started off doing uh, short term field work as, a, I guess, a field worker or field biologist for butterfly conservation and for the local national park here at Dartmoor. And I did all these and local ecological consultancies. I did bits and pieces. And then over time, I got spotted. I did the local media stuff for butterfly conservation. They got to know me. They quite liked me because I was good for a sound bite. Hard to believe now because I waffle on for hours. And, um, yeah, it just sort of developed like that. I set up a club for kids called the Bug Club when I was at university. That got me on Blue Peter. And eventually someone just said, have you considered doing this in front of the camera for a living? And I, I hadn't really, I hadn't at all. But, yeah, the Pretty Wild Show came along and, and the rest is history. I then became a wildlife presenter, which wasn't deliberate. It just happened. <laughs> Pretty cool. That's a good question. Well, you mentioned earlier about your book that we mentioned the the amateur naturalist. I've got a weird. I've got a copy of it, but it's got a weird title. It's called. What they, it's not the. I think it was the paperback version it had a different title, didn't it? It first time naturalist is one I've got, which is a foreword by Lee Durrell as well. So I assume it's the same book. But yeah, um, it's a bit weird because I'm, I'm confused myself now. I've got them all, but they are most of them in the loft now. I have. It was the new Amateur Naturalist that was the first edition. Yeah. Then there was, a, there was one that went out in America. So it was at the time I was working for National Geographic. So there was one that went out in, in America and had a different title again, I'm pretty sure. Then they brought out the same book with a different title and different cover. Then when the Collins reverted the rights back to me, we then published it with Bloomsbury. And that we then did a, an up, we updated it. So we expanded it, we improved it, and we updated it. And that is, I've forgotten which one it is now, but I think that is the new amateur, and the first time naturalist. 
and it's effectively the same but one of them is a rich one of them is a complete you know um update but the other two are the same thing but and they've all got different isbn numbers so i don't quite know how that all works and unfortunately i have nothing to do with that side of things at all it just happened i lost you for a bit there i don't know if yeah. lost you though Oh, well, we can, uh... yeah. I didn't leave me. I can hear me all the way through that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hopefully that'll be all right. Well, we're, we're, I can hear you. Being that you're obviously he's one of your heroes, that must have been pretty good doing the new version of his book. Yeah, well, it was. I pitched it to the publisher at the time because I thought, well, this was this book helped me, and they weren't reprinting the original one by Gerald Durrell, and I just thought it'd be nice to do something like a compendium of all these skills that naturalists will find useful, or or young naturalists might find inspiring, or teachers might find useful. So I I started writing the book. It got commissioned, and I started writing it, and all the way through, everyone just kept calling it the, the amateur naturalist or the new amateur naturalist. And I said, well, you should probably check with the Durrell Trust first that this is okay, because this is sort of a working title, and they'd kind of assumed that was what was going to happen. So I wrote to Lee Durrell, Gerald's uh, widow, and she wrote back, I've still got the letter somewhere, and it was so lovely, it was like a proper hero, because obviously mm. it was also turned into a TV series, so Lee and Gerald presented a TV show called The Hamilton Naturalist when I was growing up as well. It was a real honour to, to hear back, and she was so lovely and so sweet, and she said, yes, please do, I would... Go ahead with the book. Jerry would have loved it. He would have been completely supportive. But she also said that the only condition is I write the foreword for you, and I couldn't have asked for any more than that. Oh wow! Wow. Oh yeah, she wrote she wrote the foreword to the book, and yeah, and it's it's still one of the well, certainly the biggest chunkiest book I've ever written. But uh, yeah, it was an absolute absolute pleasure to put out there, and it's still it's still batting about somewhere. I, I don't I can't remember which title it's got now, but it's. <laughs> It's out there. The Blueberry version of it, anyway, is still, I believe, is still in print. So, yeah, I can see both of them on Amazon. That's what confused me. I was like, huh? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, because I know I've got one of them. So, yeah, I can't which. I've got the white cover one, which I think is the last Collins one for memory. But is that one? Jam, jam jar on the front. Yeah, yeah, that's the oh, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, oh, I need to get the March date one now. <laughs> yeah, completed, Neil. I'm disappointed. You haven't got. Yeah, no. And the foreign language versions. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the one I liked was I picked up the not the um, bug zoo, the bug book one. Oh, um, yeah, that was my first one. That was my first. Well, other than the complete giant African, uh, sorry, the giant Madagascan hissing cockroach and giant millipede handbook, which I wrote for I think TDF. The uh, my first proper book was the um, or big book really was the bug book. And, yeah, uh, someone asked for an intro to insects book to me. I said, "Oh, get that. That's that's because you know I was expecting a sort of obviously it's written for kids to read as well. But you've typical sort of your sort of way, but you've, you've put in stuff that's more than you know you know you get the standard things in in a bug book on certain bugs for kids to read. You know, scorpion fly has a scorpion tail, and then they just leave it at that kind of thing. And you've gone into little. I just I remember reading it. It's nice and easy to read. Um, uh, I think I've, I've, away from there's some technicalities in there, yeah. and it, you know, there's other thing is you know we live in a world where we get everything gets dumbed down, and yeah. uh, and that includes quite a lot of television as well. So I always liked the idea of writing a book there's multiple levels and yeah. um and there's yeah. no reason you know kids kids want more than the most adults anyway oh. out of these books so i kind of writ, wrote lots of levels to it so there was a there's the, the the very beginners level but there should be enough in there to keep someone who's who's mm. kind of interested interested you know yeah. i, I think i think you're so right with that as well because when you speak to to kids and like children that they 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 are little like sponges and they do want to learn so much more 
Yeah, I mean, they want all the posh names. They want the they want the stories behind the scientific name because it makes them empowers them. Then, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and there's something about the, uh, the, the you know the the thrill of of knowing a bit more than you make, you know, and there's a little bit of that going on. And I mean, I've always enjoyed, I'm, I, I'm still a kid at heart. I'm a professional 10 year old. So I, I still relate to that sort of feeling. And yeah, so that's what I try and do when I talk to people, I try not to patronize, but I, I often talk, I tend to present to an audience the same, no matter what the age group is. Yeah. Just, yeah, I, do, I, I do adult groups and obviously I do school groups for a living basically and up to a level and the only difference is you know i might use rude slightly ruder words with the older people <laughs> and you know one thing i don't mention is the with the kids is the what's it my it micronectar the uh, water boatman that stridulates oh, its penis what's but, um, all with? the other facts the kids get all the go- i once had someone say to me oh is it not a bit gory for the kids and after finishing well i didn't laugh in the face obviously but um, after internally laughing <laughs> i was like have you ever taught kids <laughs> they well, love the this is, I, I did um just say willy just say willy and bum yeah i could do actually yeah, yeah. Well, well when you've got a school group and you're trying to get them under uh, they're already excited on a school trip i <laughs> can tip them over the edge <laughs> I, go with, I always go with a poo though to get their attention that's always good see I, I, I did a i did a talk for a friend so her her children were at school and they had to they had, they had a school project to do a presentation on someone that they really admire and with her children it was David Attenborough, which just makes me so happy anyway. But they came home and said to mum, mum, we want to get David Attenborough to come in and speak at the school. So mum was like, yeah, I don't think that's really going to happen. You know, little school, little nursery school in, in Bath, probably not going to happen. But she said, well, what if I see if I can get one of my friends to come in? Because she's a zoologist, you know, maybe she can come in. So they were absolutely over the moon with the fact that I could go and talk to, to the school group. And I think it was a group of, at the time, seven-year-olds-ish. And honestly, they knew far more. So I did snakes and toads and zombie snails and all this kind of really cool, weird stuff that children love. And they knew more than their teachers. I mean, their teacher didn't even know we had any native snakes. And I was just like, but they knew so much more. You know, they knew the difference between venomous and poisonous, which makes me super happy. And, (laughs) you know, they they just found it so incredibly exciting. And I mean, this was a couple of years ago. And every time I see them now you know maybe once or twice or twice a year because we we play touch rugby together like uh, me and her mum their mum play touch rugby together and you know when they come along it's they're always so excited and they've always still got so many questions for me i think it's amazing it's really do i get that every day when i'm actually working <laughs> it's really yeah. good. I sometimes sometimes you get a class you say oh, i wish i wouldn't go home <laughs> so, <laughs> so the teachers i like, apologize for question i said do not do not need to apologize i, li- I like it and to do environment education you don't need to oh, how do I say you don't need to be like in-depth knowledge you only need to know a bit more but I like to be able to answer the questions for them do you know what I mean mm. it's just it's quite nice and and every so often I spot a me in the class yeah I think oh I've, I've been out knowledged by children despite you know being quite well read on such things and yeah it's it's quite nice actually when they uh, know a bit more about you on something especially if they've got like a tropical insect or something I'm a bit more clueless on but mm. yeah so I've got one from actually it's my my best friend we went to uni together and did zoology and she actually said what what would you think is the best way to introduce young children to the world of world of bugs etc oh 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 um well you gotta get out there i mean that's the thing you've got to be out there and you've got to start you start young is better um i mean i'm i'm getting the pushback now so my daughter lv is 13 so 
She's not as interested. I mean, she's interested, but she's too cool for school as well. So secretly she's interested, and every now and then she lets her guard down. But she's, she, I took her out, you know, as a kid. She'd always come everywhere with me. She'd feed the snakes with me. She's travelled all around the world with me, as it happens. But but even if we didn't have that luxury, you know, she's always on my backpack. She was always out and about. Um, and she's absorbed it. You know, you could ask her stuff now. You know, ask her to her face. You go, oh, I don't like, I, I don't like wildlife. I don't know anything about it. And and actually, she does. I mean, I was out for a walk today. She knew what a stone chat was. She was identifying. He spotted a dung beetle, but she knew it wasn't quite right. It wasn't a common Dumbledore. It wasn't a door beetle. It was something else, and it turned out to be a minotaur beetle. Um, you know, so she's pretty. I'd say she's pretty savvy. She came up with a good one for bloody nose beetles. Uh, lots of bloody nose beetles out on our walk today. Um, and she said she turned around to me, Dad. She goes, Dad, I know why they're called bloody nose beetles. And I said, Yeah, of course you do. You know, you've been taught well. And she goes, No, it's no, it's just because there's bloody loads of them as well. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's it, yeah, she's pretty much on it. So it's just, I think it's just taking them out. Don't force it upon them. Right. Go picnics, go down the beach, go rock pooling. Uh, you know, everyone likes rock pooling. Go pond dipping. Everyone likes doing that. Mm. Actually, if you don't know, it's like a, it's explore, exploration. I think pond dipping is too tame word for it. It's exploration, yeah. and mm-hmm. it's getting in there. It's re, it's going on a journey with them. And if you don't know it, it doesn't matter. Well, a lot of us suffer from this kind of um, oh, I can't do that. I'm not an expert. So it don't have to be. Just become a child again. Do it for the first time. You were never an expert when you were growing up, but you did it. So just join in. Become a kid again. Um, and and I, t- I, take, I take very old people out sometimes. I take, um, take octogenarians out rock pooling. And, it, I, you know, obviously it's a bit... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it has some challenges, but overall, like most of them haven't done it since they were kids. And it's, yeah. it's wonderful seeing them light up again and really start getting it. You know, it's like you, it's just suddenly this kind of, oh, my God, I've got to this stage in life and I've forgotten this, the, the joy of a real adventure. And, and a real adventure, you know, the definition of adventure is pushing your boundaries, is, is going outside your comfort zone. And for most of these these guys, it's, you know, they, they, they wouldn't even consider doing this. So, of course, it's an adventure. Um, so, yeah, that's what I do. Take them on adventures, mini adventures. Do it wherever mm. you can, whenever you can. doesn't have to be far. doesn't have to be exotic. Um, you know, go and sleep in the garden if you've got a garden or just wild camp or sleep under the stars. It's a, you know, it's sort of free. Well, it's free. It's not sort of free. It's free. Just go and lie in a field and look at the stars. And we've got loads of, I mean, I've, I mean, as much as I generally like to get away from electronica, there's some really good little apps and stuff which can help engage the the new screen-based generation. One of my favourites, not that I'm an astronomer, or I'm, I'm, is that I, I love relating and connecting to the natural world. I just love lying there with a stargazing app and just try and, and you know, in the absence of having someone who knows what they're talking about and pointing out all the various constellations and telling the stories, which is obviously the best way of doing it, there's some really good little apps out there now which do amazing jobs. You can, again, take it to whichever level you want to and do it together. Enjoy it as a family. I know I know. when I, I went up to see, see Christine last year, actually on the way to Bird Fair and her son, and we went out and we found a leopard, snail, uh, leopard slug. Wow. Oh, First time cool. I've ever seen one of these. And it's amazing when you see something and you've got a three-year-old with you. It's just the most amazing thing ever. I mean, you know, he, he's absolutely big into his wildlife and his nature anyway. And not really surprising because Christine and I, well, we did some really cool stuff at, at uni together. But, you know, just to see that excitement, it makes such a difference to you as an adult as well. 
Yeah, and if it's okay. real excitement that you are generating, it's yeah. addictive to everyone around you. You know, that's that, that's. I mean, he, it. I love it. He he named the slug. I don't. <laughs> actually, I think he named it Charlie. It was called Charlie the Leopard Snail, uh, slug, <laughs> and which was just so amazing. Slug and snail, but you're West Country, so it's all right. Because yeah. obviously, slugs and snails are all cool. We're all called snails anyway. So yeah, um, yeah call it a leopard snail. We know what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm. I so I think that. I think that kind of answers. We had a question from Maya Bambrook as well, and I think that kind of qu- answers her question because she said about in- engaging younger people, especially teenagers, with wildlife. And I guess it's just you know same approach really. It's, it's, it's getting them out there. Yeah, teenagers is a little bit more tricky because usually, I mean, even I went off the off the boil a bit as a teenager. I, I, I got into bike. I still secretly went out and watched the badges, but I was into racing push bikes there, and I got into you know bikes in a big way. I got into girls. I got into beer, not necessarily in the right order, or, <laughs> or in them all either. But um, but I did, you know, you kind of go off the ball a little bit. Pets was a definite one. I mean, I I kept a lot of, and again, it's not seen necessarily as PC. I think I talk about this quite a lot, but you know, just keeping and studying invertebrates in in tanks. Uh, etc there's this idea that you shouldn't do that and it's poking and prodding things is bad and i totally understand and get that as well but equally i think it's even worse in the long term if someone grows up not knowing how cool a woodlouse is yet actually you know it may be that those woodlice that you have got in a tank get forgotten and perish hopefully they don't but sometimes there is a bit of collateral damage with this but I, I think a, da- a more dangerous world would be one where we really don't get the the functions of these creatures and see them for what they actually are and what their, their true value and worth is. So, yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag. But, yeah, keeping animals is another good way. Um, and, again, it, it very much depends. Often with teenagers, I let them lead. So if I'm teaching a group of teenagers, often I can set up the stall, as it were. I can set up the broad stroke of where we're going, what we could see. And then generally, I then watch a little bit and see how they react, what they're into, what they're interested in. And then I pick up on that. So in some ways, it's like asking an audience. The most satisfying audience you'll ever have is one where you just stand there and answer their questions because you're not assuming anything. You are literally answering what they want to know. You're giving them what they want. Um, And I think the same happens with with what happens with any audience, whether that's your, your kids or a or a theatreful, it's the same thing. I find that with when I have a, a more older teenage group, you can be well, you can be a bit more well. I don't want to use the word rude, but cheeky with them, and you know, if one gets a bit sassy, you can be a bit sassy back, and that <laughs> I find that sometimes helps you bond with them. If one's one's testing, you know, testing you a little bit, because sometimes they, you get that one kid, don't you, that wants to test you a little bit. Um, it's like probably a slightly different environment to you, Nick, I guess, because uh, I'm obviously. A sort of teacher at that point and but um I, <laughs> i've been known to give a bit of sass back and uh, get almost gain respect that way which is quite complete opposite of me as a teenager i was always the you know bottom of the pecking order so it was quite funny teenagers are a are a funny one to get but i find you know to start with they're very resistant aren't they sometimes and then they you know one or two of them goes oh that's a bit interesting or especially if you get pond dipping and then suddenly it turned or you get a bit of competitive going what well, he's got a newt. Oh, we got we're getting more newts than him. We're not being by him, and he's just sort of they don't realise it, but they're actually getting quite into it sometimes. It's uh, yeah, it always gets the, the competition is inevitable. Yeah. Isn't it, really, yeah. And I think you think about it, we we've all been there as teenagers. Yeah. We've all been through oh, it. Yeah. You know, yeah, whatever it is that you kind of turn to. I mean, 
I was a teenager, well, 16, I started playing rugby. So sport became a, back, a massive thing for me. Mm. And yeah, I never lost my love of the outdoors and always wanted to work with, with nature. But yeah, there's always going to be those little deviations. Um, and I think it's only natural, to be yeah. honest. It's... Uh, Mike Dilger came up with a term. I don't know if you've heard it, Nick. Um, nature Tourette's. Yes. And I used to do it yes. with my mates. Yeah, <laughs> Walking around, pointing things out. And my mates used to go... Well, mates, a girl I liked turned around and went, you're such a nerd. But in, not not in a mean way, but a sort of, you're such a nervous thing. And then what really annoyed me was about a year later, she pointed one, a kestrel out again to somebody else. I was like, what? And because it's, it's a boy she liked. I thought, oh, I see, you know. <laughs> it's just kind of uh, double standards. To be I mean, honest, I, th- I think I still have nature Tourette's now because when I was trying oh, to film a video for uh, my crowdfunder thing a couple of years ago, it took me four attempts to fil- film the introduction because something would fly past it and I'd forget that I was filming. I'd be like, oh, wow, look, a dragonfly. And I would just completely lose track. Yeah. And so I think I'm still like that now, to be honest with you. And I hope I never lose it. I do it when oh. I'm driving in the car by myself. I was like, oh, look, orange tip butterfly. <laughs> oh, yeah, I do <laughs> that. Yeah, red kites are dangerous over the motorway of me. I'm, I've actually think I've perfected the art of looking at them through the corner of my eye now. <laughs> 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 But um, uh, I, I like to think of it as my job to have nature Tourette's when I'm walking around with kids. You know, you're walking from one spot to where the pond is or whatever. If I see something, I'm going to point it out. But I, <laughs> perhaps not such good teaching technique is when they're sort of, you're mid explaining what they're going to do. And then a kestrel flies and goes, I'm going to stop you there and point out this kestrel or this cuckoo. Oh, they love it. They love it. Yeah, they do. But they forget what, I forget what I've told them. <laughs> it's not their fault problem, it's mine. But I mean, when I was at Wat Tyler Country Park in Essex, South East England, it had a very stable population of cuckoos. There's always two or three males around every summer I was there. And I'd point it out to the kids, and mostly adults had never seen one. And uh, my mum, she's not, you know, she's not a nature mad as I am, but she's never seen a cuckoo. And she does like a wildlife. So uh, it took me a few years to show her a first um, kingfisher. Um, and owl and took her to see some badgers as well so i'm taking me mum and dad to places over the years as well that things i haven't seen so but a lot of people my age so they're, they're the parents of the kids because a lot of people have kids at mid-20s so their kids are coming to all these pond dipping sessions and stuff i'm doing they've never done pond dipping it's horrifying to me that they they never experienced it because i think my age group probably sort of i imagine fixed to my age group maybe a bit younger we we didn't have this access to the countryside perhaps a lot of the older generations did but we didn't have all these wonderful nature reserves trying to encourage families to go there at the same time and i think a lot of us a lot of people my age missed it which probably why i was on my own kind of thing um doing a lot of this stuff certainly at senior school age um yeah i mean i i I think i because i had parents that very much were about getting us out we would volunteer you know both me and my brother dad would take us down we volunteered at one of the nature reserves every weekend and whether it was clearing doing small mammal surveys we would be out and every sunday we'd be volunteering down there so yeah it was actively encouraged by my parents but actually yeah then maybe you know at school i was probably certainly when i got to senior school i was probably one of the few people that really had that interest mm. i think but you're know, the only one <laughs> school before that um we had great biology teachers and we had like ponds and stuff um at school so we did a lot of stuff then but going to senior school we didn't have any of it so yeah yeah my, my nature watching was my garden and when i went to cornwall for a couple two or three weeks every summer damer bay rock pooling lou harbour rock pooling and you probably know bellever do you know bellever nick yeah, no, yeah. Well, yeah 
and dart meat and all those. You know, the the river, the forestry commission park your car, and rather than go to the beach, you go to the river and build a dam and golden ring dragonflies and all that. I remember good days down there, watching the trout and never getting anywhere near them with a net. <laughs> yeah. And as an adult, that was the first place I found a stonefly larva. That was funny enough. Not that long ago, <laughs> for worrying me. Never seen a stone or not a larva anyway, or nymph. Is it nymph? It'd be yeah. nymph, wouldn't it? Nymph, not lava. Oh, dear. Well, no, they're called dragonflies. And this is where I get... Yes, it's getting confusing now, isn't it? We call a lot of these things larvae. And then larvae, for me, is a maggoty type thing. Exactly, and yeah. Dealing with something that isn't doesn't undergo complete metamorphosis, so it doesn't go through an egg, larval, pupa, adult stage. If it just grows up and then leaves the water, to me, that's a nymph. Exactly, uh, that's what I always thought. So, yeah. yeah, so I'm with you. I'm with you. And now people are calling baby amphibians larvae, and I'm just I'm just up in arms about that. <laughs> no, no, they're tadpoles. They're tadpoles. They're not larvae. Fs, you know. Oh, Nick, don't start the F debate. That's just gonna. What oh. is an F? <laughs> is it a tadpole? Is it if it's got four legs? If it's left the water, is it still in the water? Oh, uh, you've well, start you that amphibian forum. You can get these these uh, some of the American species leave the water as a non-mature so sexually non-mature animal but it has lost its gills yeah. um and that becomes a, that is an f um as well so but yeah i'm not a, sorry, a, a newt pole uh, yeah. is is an is a, an f in my world i mean yeah but again you know who's who's making these rules up yeah i i, I generally i started off thinking f was when it, just after it left its gill so instead of froglet and toadlet you call it a it was an eft. I used to call it newt lit as a kid, but there you go. Um, newt pole apparently makes some herpetologists cringe, which is why I like to use it sometimes just to wind them up. But um, yeah, oh, I, I've I've had many a debate about. Um, what does your audience think? That's that's the side. Yeah, issue. I I I, I just call them newt, we newt need to put a poll on the page. We need to put a poll on the page. Yeah. Newt tadpole and newt lit. I pole. pole. I just, I just, I just, oh, pop, oh dear. I, I, I just evolve, I just evade, um, avoid using F as much as possible. Yes. Oh. What would be if it still got its gills? Um, that's, that's neonatal. That's, uh, oh, that's, that's true, yes. Sex mature, so an ulm or an axolotl or a mud puppy or, I'm, I'm hoping your audience know all the things we're referring to here because otherwise so. each one requires an awful lot of explanation. But, uh, yeah. but basically we're talking about a fully aquatic salamanders that yeah. don't leave the water. They they, they go through their, their life cycle, but rather than lose their larval characteristics, which would be the gills and the tail fins, they keep those, but they grow gonads, basically. So they become like... Um, yeah, sexy, uh, sexy efts. <laughs> yeah. Have you, um, have you ever seen um, any native ne- neotenous newts? Yes, yes, occasionally. occasionally. Yeah, I, I'm very lucky. Um, Steve Alan, who I mentioned earlier, I actually got a question from him coming up actually in a minute. Um, he was he was on the podcast. He did the frog one with us. He's doing a lot of work on snake viral disease. I always get it wrong. Um, which basically snake fungal disease. Is it fungal? It's not viral, is it? Oh, see, I said it fungal. the wrong way again. Uh, so I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Um, which I, I, I sort of very, it roughly translates to reptile version of citrid, really. Yeah, because it's fungus. Oh, see, I should have remembered it because it's fungus. But anyway, he, there's a swimming pool in the house he was staying in to do this study. And the newts are getting in and can't get out. And you've got these, they're not quite full grown, like full length of a smooth newt. But they look halfway between an adult and a and a, a tadpole smooth newt. I was hoping to go there this time here to see if they had the mouths to develop the crests at all which would have been really cool but i did get some nice pictures of some but interestingly it's like when i took one home it metamorphosed oh, okay even though it was in a tank it couldn't get out of we reckon the change in depth 
um, might have affected it somehow. They're really cool things. Well, that's part one. Tune in to the next episode for part two.